1933 to 1960. Dr. Lee was an eloquent man. He was a wordsmith. You, you can go online, actually, and read what is considered to be his most famous sermon, uh, a sermon called Payday Someday. Uh, but the, the words, I mean, you just can't imagine anybody using that many adjectives and adverbs. Uh, his, his sermons are a delight to read. Uh, the old Bellevue Church was in Midtown Memphis, uh, and the auditorium would seat about 3,000. And Dr. Lee preached Payday Sunday, the first Sunday of May every year, and the auditorium wasn't big enough. So Bellevue rented out the Memphis Auditorium, and 5,000 people would pack it to hear Dr. Lee preach Payday Sunday. Thousands of people were converted through his ministry. Um, he was a tireless worker. He preached these eloquent sermons verbatim from memory. He never used a note. I, I heard him preach about three years before he died. He was 85 years old. He quoted his text, which was about 14 verses. He never looked at a note. And like I said, the words were just amazing. But I heard Dr. Lee say one time there was a discussion that was going on in the, some meeting that we were having, and people were talking about the Roman road. Some of you may be familiar with that. That was a, a kind of a, a, a witnessing evangelistic tool that is used, still used. It's just taking some verses from Romans and going through them. And someone asked if the first two verses that are commonly used, Romans 3.23, and the first part of Romans 6.23 was the gospel. Well, Romans 3.23, as you know, says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's not good news, obviously. Romans 6.23, the first part of it says, For the wages of sin is death. That's not good news either. Uh, but anyway, I'll never forget Dr. Lee's reply to the question. He said, No, it's not good news. But son, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. Well, that is, that is kind of what Paul is doing here in these first chapters and these verses of Romans. That is, he is going to come to the point where everyone is going to know that they are lost. And without the gospel, there is no hope of salvation. At first glance, we look at these uh, opening words of Romans 2, and they seem a bit redundant. They're an echo of what we've already seen in the letter. In, in Romans 1.20, for instance, after Paul had explained how men and women suppress the truth about God that is revealed in nature, where we can see his power uh, and his person, he says, so men are without excuse. And now he comes again and says the same thing. Therefore, you have no excuse, and continues to build the case that all people, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, come under the just wrath of God. Now, of course, Paul is not being redundant, as we'll see, but even if he were, the point of repetition would be well taken. Paul's repetition dramatizes the, the fact that human beings never seem to be able to fully admit their wrongdoing. And they never get tired of making excuses for their bad behavior. Um, a very famous book 
a perennial bestseller in the 20th century written by a man by the name of Dale Carnegie was entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he based his approach to people management on the premise that people rarely ever admit to having done anything wrong and therefore it is pointless to criticize them. Because no matter what you point out to them, they're going to find a way to justify it. My favorite example uh, from the book is a quotation of Al Capone. Now, probably all of you have heard of Al Capone. He was a ruthless gangland leader in Chicago. For years, he was FBI's public enemy number one. I mean, this was as hardened a killer as there has ever been in American history, basically. But he said of himself, and here's a quote, I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. Now, Carnegie's point, and mine as well, is that people habitually attempt to excuse their bad behavior. If a man who was as incorrigibly wicked as Al Capone thought so well of himself, how much more do morally upright people think of themselves? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we've looked at how Paul mainly has indicted the pagan Gentile world for their many sins. Idolatry, sexual immorality, homosexuality, a long list of very destructive relational sins. And, and being a Jew and a former Pharisee, Paul knew well enough that uh, his former peers were standing there cheering him on. That's it. Give it to them. Let them filthy sinners have it, you know. Uh, you know, it's the mythical they that the preacher is always talking about when he talks about sinners. You know, boy, they got it today. Well, you know, that's, that's what they're doing. Uh, and they're, they are undoubtedly congratulating themselves that they are not like those filthy Gentile sinners. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to zero in on the Jew and on the moral Gentile. Uh, he actually doesn't address the Jew directly until 2.17, and that's, as I said last week, that's led to a lot of debate about who he is addressing here. Is it the Jew or is it the moral Gentile? As a practical matter, I don't think it, I don't think it is of much concern. I, I think he's using the indirect uh, approach of the prophet Amos. You remember Amos, uh, in the first two chapters of his book, condemns all of the nations uh, around Israel. Uh, woe unto Moab, woe unto Edom, woe, you know, they've done this and that. And then finally, bam, he hits the Jews. You know, while they're up cheering, Paul or Amos condemning all of these others, uh, then he hits them. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I, I think that is the case because it was particularly a problem of the first century Jew to judge others while ignoring their own sin. It is also particularly a problem of 21st century Baptist. So it, we do well to pay attention here. 
From his own Pharisaical background, Paul knew that self-righteous people tend to uh, justify themselves by blaming others. Self-righteousness is an extremely difficult sin to get people to see and to condemn in themselves. But it is a serious, damnable sin, and it keeps people from seeing their need for the gospel. There, there's all kinds of people who think they are too good to have to be saved. You know, I, I, I couldn't tell you the number of people of my years in the ministry that have said to me, well, you know, I've never done anything terribly bad. I, I, don't, I don't know why that I need this gospel. I mean, I've, I've tried to do well. I've, I've tried to take care of people. I've tried to be good to my neighbors. You know, not realizing that human goodness is the first form, worst form of evil if it is substituted for the new birth. It says, I'm good enough. I'm righteous enough to make it to heaven myself. I don't need a Savior. I don't need to die for my sins in my place. I can do it myself. Thank you, I'm a good person. Like Al Capone, for instance. I'm, I'm you know, hey, I, I might be a bad person, but me and Al, hey, we're, you know, we're just trying to help people, okay? Uh, and, and God surely wouldn't judge good guys, you know, not good guys like me and David and Al Capone. <clears throat> We'd be okay. So I want us to look at this sin of, of judging others while we are sinning ourselves. And know that all of us, all of the human race, is prone to hypocrisy. Now, the therefore in, in verse 1 connects us, or chap, verse 1 connects us back to chapter 1 in order to instruct the Jews that if God's wrath is revealed against the sin of the pagans who have exchanged the truth of God's true word for a lie, it will also be revealed against those who do the same things. It doesn't mean that every Jew had committed every sin mentioned in chapter 1 but it does mean that they are included in the catalog of sins, particularly those in verses 29 and 30. Paul is pointing out that we are all prone to condemn others and justify ourselves, even if we are guilty of the very same sins that we are condemning in others. I read some years ago about a man who was a Republican Party chairman of a county in Florida, and he sued the GOP County Executive Committee uh, for defamation because the chairman of that committee sent out a letter saying that this particular man had been married six times. And so he sued them, and in the lawsuit, he stated that the charge was absolutely heinous and unconscionable because he had only been married five times and that family values really mattered to him. See, we, we, we're all kind of prone to that kind of thing. That's the, that's the kind of thing that we, we do. Now, you need to understand that Paul isn't condemning the act of judging others per se. He expects his Jewish readers to agree with him about the sins of the Gentiles, that they are wrong. That's making a judgment. Um, the problem 
is when you judge others and you are secretly engaging in the same behavior that you are openly condemning. Probably one of the most quoted and least understood verses in all of the Bible is in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 where Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Uh, if people keep reading on in Matthew chapter 7, they will see that in verse 6, Jesus tells us not to give that which is holy to the dogs or to cast our pearls before swine. Now, he's not talking about literal dogs and literal hogs, uh, but rather about people who exhibit the characteristics of dogs and swine. To obey the verse, you have to judge whether or not a person is dog or swine. And then in verse 15, Jesus warns about false prophets who come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. You have to judge carefully to be able to conclude this is not a sheep, this is a wolf masquerading as a sheep. And the point is clear. If you don't make a correct judgment, you'll get eaten by the wolves. Also, Paul tells us that we are responsible to judge those in the church who profess to be believers but who are living in sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in Romans 2, Paul is not saying it's wrong to judge others. What Paul is condemning in Romans chapter 2 in these first verses is that it is wrong to self-righteously judge others while you are committing the same sins that you're judging. Remember a few years ago a very, a very prominent TV evangelist called out another evangelist uh, for immoral behavior and he caused the man to have to uh, forfeit his ministry and this man <clears throat> was a bit vengeful I guess so he had this very prominent TV preacher followed around and caught him with a prostitute in a hotel in New Orleans and then that prominent preacher you know got up and cried a little and said it wasn't that bad you know when he was doing it wasn't as bad you know as others I not mention any names Jimmy Swaggart but that's the way everybody is prone to do we're we're prone to hypocrisy uh, so I want to look at that for a moment what 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 are the marks or what are some marks of, of self-righteousness of hypocrisy uh, so that we can evaluate ourselves. Now be careful, because if you hear these and think that the only person you know guilty of them is your spouse, you got it wrong, okay? You, you're, not, you're not getting it, all right? Uh, a hypocrite judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sin. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He said, you're, you're running around, and a man's got a tiny little speck of lint in his eye, and you've got a four-by-four four stuck in yours, and you're saying to him, you need to get that speck out of your eye. You understand that? That's, that's not right. You need to get that out of here. Uh, someone has defined a modern-day hypocrite as one who complains that there's entirely too much sex and violence on his Netflix account. But a hypocrite judges others based upon standards that he has established, not on God's Word. One of the most helpful chapters for understanding the sin of, of self-righteousness is the indictment that Jesus brings against the Pharisees 
in Matthew chapter 23, they picked out certain parts of the law and they prided themselves on obeying that, but they neglected the weightier parts of the law. They tithed their table spices, but they neglected mercy. They neglected justice and faithfulness. They invented loopholes to get around the law. They said if you swore by the temple, you were not obligated to keep your word. I mean, you could tell someone, I'll do this. I swear by the temple. Didn't matter. You could do whatever you wanted. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, then you were obligated to keep your word. A hypocrite is always more concerned about external appearance than true inner godliness. Jesus said in Matthew 23, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You remember that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were concerned that they not go into uh, Pilate's Gentile court because it might defile them from taking the Passover meal. Now get that. They're about, they're about to murder the Lamb of God, but they're afraid they'll defile themselves if they go into a Gentile court. Uh, Self-righteous people want to keep up outward appearances uh, but they don't judge their sins on the heart level uh, they put on a happy Christian face and then live like the devil uh, a hypocrite is not interested in helping others grow in godliness they are interested in gaining a following you always, you always have people like that in any organization the church has them uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Arnold could tell us about some people in Christian schools that are like that, who are interested in promoting themselves rather than, than people being becoming godly. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You yourselves do not enter in, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourself. These people didn't care about the people. They didn't care about what kind of heart they had before God. They were interested in gaining followers so that they looked good. So they could see, say, I've got this many people following me. A hypocrite always justifies himself by comparing himself or with others or blaming others for his own sin. Jesus told the par parable of the proud Pharisee, you remember. He went to the temple and he said, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He wasn't comparing himself with God's word, which would condemn him. Rather, he was comparing himself with others who in his mind were much worse than he was. We all do that. Well, I might be sinful, but hey, I'm not like that preacher at North Athens. I mean, 
thank, thank God you're not, too. I mean, you know. But we're all prone to try to justify our behavior by looking at others that we feel their behavior is worse. I mean, in his mind, the tax collector, uh, or the, the Pharisee kept part of the law. The tax collector didn't keep any of it. So the Pharisee was much, much better. On, on the curve, he would be. Only problem is God doesn't grade on the curve. God requires absolute, perfect righteousness. The curve doesn't count. So Paul's point here is quite practical. He says, you are prone self-righteously to condemn others for the very sins that you are committing yourself. And hypocrisy brings God's judgment. Verse 2 of Romans 2 is one of those uh, rare places where I don't like the translation in the ESV. And I don't know why they translate it this way, really, unless they just kept the old Revised Standard Version. The King James and the New King James gets it much better. Literally, it says, God's judgment is according to truth. I checked with a Greek scholar, and the word truth, according to truth, is in there. If you translate it literally, it says, according to truth. Now, I say that because that's going to become very important. It's very important because it has to do with what we believe about the atonement. If God judges according to truth, then He must and He will judge sin. Which means that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Which means that you must have a substitute. Which means that the atonement is a penal atonement. God punishes sin according to truth. has to happen that way. And so the atonement must be a penal substitutionary atonement. God judges according to truth. How many of us in this room are condemned for our sins? Every one of us. How many in the human race are condemned for their sins? Every one of them. Who is the only substitute that could take our place and pay the penalty for sin. Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other way of salvation because no one else meets the requirements for being a substitute. No one else. Uh, now, now, Paul's hypothetical Jewish reader here would have agreed that God's judgment was according to truth. Where he would have disagreed is that is in Paul's assertion, assertion that the righteous judgment of God falls on Jews as well as Gentiles. In other words, the Jews claimed status because they were God's covenant people. That separated them out. They believed that if you were a Jew living in Palestine, you were treated as if you had kept all the commandments of God and were guaranteed... Uh, in the life to come. Uh, but Paul applies God's just judgment to Jews and Gentiles alike. He says if you judge others for the very sins that you are committing, you're guilty in God's court of justice. In doing this, Paul is not even pointing to God's revealed law yet. He, 
He will, and, and he could, but he hasn't done so yet. Rather, he's saying that a self-righteous person who commits the sins that he is condemning in others has judged himself. If you condemn others for lying, and then you lie, you've condemned yourself. How many of us do that, by the way? Oh, them lying politicians. They lie all the time. And then when we're caught in a hard situation where people are going to think less of us or whether where we might be in a little bit of trouble, what do we do? We, we lie. I mean, it, what else are we going to do? We've we got to get out of this somehow. I've told you the story. I'll never forget one time I was 16 years old, and we always sat in the balcony. I went to a rather large church in Knoxville, about 1,000 people. And some of us 16-year-olds do what 16-year-olds do. You know, we were talking, laughing, you know. Preacher stops preaching. We sit down. We get quiet. We start again. He preaches again. He goes, finally, he says, get an usher up there with them boys. And if they can't behave, take them to their parents. I got home. My dad looked at me, and he said, were you in that bunch? And as a future candidate for ministry, I looked him right in the eye and lied like a dog. <laughs> no, sir, not me. That wasn't me. And he said, well, let me tell you something, boy. He said, if that ever happens again, I'm going to come up there, and I'll jerk you up. I'll whip you right in front of that whole bunch. I told my friends that. They said, oh, he wouldn't do that. I said, the man is honest to a fault. Let me tell you, he will do exactly what he says. Listen. God's judgment is according to truth. God is going to do exactly what he has said he's going to do in his word. Now, of course, Paul is not saying here, you will escape God's judgment if you lie and steal and don't judge others. He is simply saying that all of us have violated our own standards. We are guilty by our own behavior. Because we judge in others what we are guilty of ourselves. In verse 4 he says that God's kindness should lead us to repentance. Not to presumption. But it leads people to presumption. Well, God hasn't judged the world yet, has he? All you preachers, all you Christians, you've been running around for 2,000 years saying God's going to judge sin. God's going to judge sin. Someday God's going to destroy the world. Someday Jesus is coming back. He ain't coming back, has he? It doesn't lead them, the, the goodness and the mercy of God doesn't lead them to repentance. It leads them to presume that because God is merciful and patient and long-suffering and has not yet judged sin, they presume that He will never judge sin. Paul said when you do that, you're just storing up wrath against the day of wrath. It should lead you to to repentance, rather it leads to self-righteous complacency. Uh, God's kindness points to the many good gifts that He has given to the rebellious human race. He gives us air to breathe, food to eat, homes to live in, families that love us, beautiful scenery to enjoy, uh, bodies and minds that for the most part work like they're supposed to. He treats us far better than we deserve. God's forbearance points to the fact that he, he doesn't strike us dead instantly when we sin against Him. I've often said that if God treated me like I treat others sometime, I'd been dead a long time ago. How many times have we known what was right and deliberately disobeyed? But God did not strike us dead. He could have, but He is tolerant. He is patient. 
His patience is similar to his forbearance. The word literally means long on wrath, slow to anger. God gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent without inflicting judgment. And he just doesn't trickle these blessings on us. Paul says he gives them to us richly. The problem is sinners mistakenly think that because they experience all of these blessings and have not been struck dead and God has not immediately inflicted his wrath, they're okay. They're not going to face judgment. They're good people, just like Al Capone. They're not like the pagans that Paul described in chapter 1. But Paul says if you think that God's kindness and tolerance and patience mean that you will escape final judgment, you're in big trouble. God is kind and tolerant and patient so that you will repent. And then he says that failure to, to repent will lead to wrath on judgment day in verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath against the day of wrath and the day of judgment. Uh, Dr. James Boyce gives a, a beautiful illustration in his commentary on Romans 2. He says it's like a, a miser, a man who gets a gold coin every day. And he, he's got a box right up in his attic, in his bedroom over his bed and every day he puts that gold coin uh, in that in that box it's his treasure it's his treasure it's what's going to deliver him it's what's going to save him and one night the box gets so heavy it comes crashing down on his head and kills him he thought it was his treasure but he was simply storing up wrath against the day of wrath and God's judgment will come it's the same for the self-righteous person who presumes upon God's kindness and, and patience. He judges others, but he does not judge his own sin. He goes on in his pride thinking that his outward righteousness is amassing him a great treasure of wealth that will be his to enjoy one day. And actually, he is amassing a treasure of wrath against the day of judgment. Note that that Paul isn't talking here to idolaters. He's not talking to the sexually immoral. He's talking, he's talking to moral, religious people. The day of wrath points to its certainty. There will be a day of wrath for all of those who have not repented of sin, especially the sin of self-righteousness. Paul says... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He told that to the Athenians on Mars Hill. He has fixed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness. Get the picture. Men go to stand before God. What's the story here? Oh, well, I've been a good person, just like Al Capone. I, I went to church. I helped my neighbor. I, there's a widow down the street. I, I cut her grass. I never charged her but $50 ever. And, you know, I've, I've just, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to look out for people, you know. I cheated a little on my taxes, but, hey, that's the government. doesn't count. You know. And God says, well, are, are you absolutely righteous? Are you absolutely perfect? Are you without any sin at all? 
well, no, no, I'm not, no, I, I wouldn't claim that. And God says, well, that's what's required to enter heaven is absolute righteousness, absolute perfection. Now, what are you going to do in the day of wrath? If you don't have absolute perfection, if you don't have absolute righteousness, you must have one who will substitute for you. And the only one that can do that is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. You see, Jesus is born of a virgin, born sinless. He remains sinless. He doesn't break any of God's commandments all of his life, not a one. Positively, he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and sin, uh, strength all of, all of the days of his life. And then he goes to a cross and dies, not for his sin, but for all of those who are believing. Will you believe? Will you trust him? Do you believe that Christ died in your place because you justly deserve the wrath of God? But God has made provision in the gospel, in the cross of Jesus Christ. I heard about a man who complained about TV all of the time. His family just spent too much time in front of the TV. His kids couldn't get their homework done. His wife watched the soap operas all the time, didn't get her housework done. And, and he said to himself, as soon as football season is over, I'm canceling this TV subscription. Self-righteousness is a sneaky sin. We can see it so clearly in others, but we cannot see it in ourselves. God's solution is to deal with your sin on the heart level. If you're not a Christian, to come to Christ, confess your sins, turn to Him, trust Him, believe on Him. If you are a Christian, spend time daily in His Word. It is His Word that will show you what your sins are. That perfect Word is like looking in a mirror, as it were to show you your sins so that you can confess those sins because he said if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he was talking to believers John was when he wrote that 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 don't play games with God his kindness his patience his mercy and his grace should lead us to repentance not to presumption Let's pray. Our Father and our God.